Welcome to today's podcast, What Data from China Can Be Trusted and What Does It Really Tell Us? In 2007, then-Secretary General of Liaoning Province, Li Keqiang, told the U.S. Ambassador that China's gross domestic product numbers were man-made and that they were for reference only. Now, as China's second-in-command after General Xi Jinping and as Xi's hand-picked coordinator of China's COVID-19 response, Li is in charge of informing the world of China's coronavirus infection tally. The tally, much like China's GDP numbers, have raised questions about whether they can be trusted. Official Chinese government numbers have been suspect for years, with China-focused economists preferring to refer to other measures, such as pollution levels, instead of relying on the government GDP numbers. With the global outbreak of COVID-19 and its response relying upon government numbers, their untrustworthiness has been cast into stark relief. In this RAIN podcast, RAIN network experts will be discerning how businesses can parse the government data to get an accurate view of China, what other methods they should rely on, and how they can best build in the assumption of faculty data into their China-centered business. For panelists today, we have Emily de la Briere. Emily is a co-founder of Horizon Advisory. She has led extensive China research programs and developed novel analysis tools and techniques. She received her BA summa cum laude from Princeton University and her MA summa cum laude from Sciences Po Paris, where she was the Michelle David Wheel Fellow. She has testified as an expert witness for the Senate Banking Committee. Her recent public commentaries have been published in TechCrunch and the National Interest, and her expertise cited in the New York Times and the Washington Post. We also have Andrew Polk. Andrew Polk is the co-founder of Trivium China, where he leverages his experiences of conducting economic analysis on China and advising asset managers and hedge funds on developments in the Chinese economy and financial markets. Prior to Trivium China, Polk worked as a director on China at Medley Global Advisors from 2016 to 2017, and as a resident economist at the conference board from 2011 to 2016. Moderating our discussion today, we have David Lawrence. David Lawrence is a founder and chief collaborative officer at RAIN. Prior to RAIN, David was an associate general counsel and managing director at Goldman Sachs, and he formerly had held various executive positions at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And with that, I will turn it over to David. David? Andrew and Emily, it's a real privilege and honor to be able to have a conversation with you at a very important uh, point in time where... Um, the world is um, looking for insights and information around the pandemic, uh, the risk, and obviously looking outside their immediate communities for actionable information and the data that can be relied upon and trusted. So why don't we just sort of begin a little bit on the background and Andrew with you and just talking about sort of your experience and looking at uh, data from China and uh, the types of work that you've been doing and then we'll uh, I'll turn it over to Emily, and then we'll, we'll sort of launch into uh, specific information relevant to the uh, pandemic. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be part of the discussion. Um, my background is I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an economist, a macroeconomist. I've been doing China macro for a little over 10 years. When I first moved to Beijing in 2011, I was with a place called the Conference Board, which some of your uh, listeners may, may be familiar with. And the Conference Board has a very long history of doing deep data analysis. They were actually 
the, the first study out of the conference board in New York was a study on on um, the uh, on on uh, labor issues that looked at at wages in the early 1900s that eventually became the U.S. CPI. So that's the kind of um, deep data work the conference board does. And while I was there, we worked closely with the Chinese government and companies to understand Chinese GDP and other data points. So it's something that I've been looking at for a long time, uh, mostly doing China-based analysis for multinational companies. I've worked with investors some a little bit, but mostly really based with businesses. And I think the interesting thing and rewarding thing about working with businesses is you do all this work on the macro side, but then you can talk to businesses and say, hey, does this align with what you're seeing on the ground? And they can usually help you, you know, they can say yes or no and give you kind of a, a good gut check on the data you're looking at and how you're thinking about the data. And I think for me, thinking about data in China, that's particularly important is to have various ways to gut check your assumptions and gut check what you're seeing in the data since we know there are a lot of deficiencies. That's great. And Emily, um, just a quick overview in terms of some of the work uh, that you historically have done uh, with respect to China. Yes, absolutely. So I've spent, I guess, all of my career looking at China data. And at first that was from a national security perspective, working with elements in the defense community to understand China's strategy and resource allocations and to make the leap from what they say and what they actually do. And now I'm at Horizon Advisory, which does geopolitical analysis, very China-focused um, for both the government and the private sector. And I mean, this really, this question, this podcast is precisely what we do. Um, how do you parse Chinese discourse and how do you connect that discourse to actual resource allocations? And where does the data that you're seeing from the Chinese government and that you're actually finding on the ground in China play into all of that? And as I'm sure we'll get to, that involves grappling with the fact that China's strategy is premised on being able to shape the information environment. But that's also, you can only go so far on doing that in a world where we are so integrated. So as Andrew, you said, there's always going to be somebody who is interacting with facts on the ground. And so you have to make that connection between the information environment China is shaping and the facts on the ground you can get to from actually weeding through them. That's great. And let me um, raise with you what is the big sort of question that people have these days, which is, what is the data telling you out of China about the pandemic and sort of the nature of the risk? What is working? What is not working? And what we can rely upon, not just simply from a medical standpoint, but with Andrew, to, to your point, businesses are trying to understand um, what the data is telling them about the markets. Uh, the world is clearly, this is a an issue around global security, the global economy, community safety. Obviously, there has been a immeasurable toll uh, around the world in terms of the loss of life and um, and quite frankly, liberties that people had become accustomed to. So it'd be great to 
begin to unpack what you're seeing and how you're interpreting it. And I'll, Andrew, I'll start with you, and then Emily, it'd be great to grab your insights as well. Yeah, so I think I I would tend to break it down in a couple of different ways. One, there's the, the data around the actual health situation and the pandemic. And then there's the economic data, um, which is obviously related. Um, in terms of the pandemic data, I know there's a ton of skepticism around the numbers coming out of China, and I half share that and half push back against it. And what I mean by that is we think that the overall number of cases and deaths is certainly understated in China. And primarily, I think that's um, due to an undercounting or underreporting or under-testing uh, in Wuhan, you know, the, the original epicenter of the virus. And I primarily put that down to really um, ineptitude and the missteps at the beginning of uh, of the outbreak in terms of the government handling of it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's right to question the overall level of those numbers. But also, as we've gotten further on, what we often do is we look at not just what the Chinese government is saying about the numbers and the pandemic, but what they're doing. And their actions in recent weeks really do suggest to us that they have a they feel as though they have a pretty solid grasp on um, containing the virus outbreak, right? And their life is getting back to normal. It's not normalized in a lot of Chinese cities, but it's getting back to normal. And again, to the point of kind of verifying facts on the ground, people in Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen and some of the big cities, they are getting out. They're going back to bars and restaurants, not to the same level as before, but life is normalizing. And the government has been fairly, um, it's obviously been vigilant to try to stop another outbreak, especially one that's imported. But if the government was covering up the numbers or lying about the numbers now in terms of new cases, we'd see a very different behavior or reaction function from policymakers. And so for us, I think... It makes sense to be skeptical about the overall numbers, but where we are now in terms of the control of the virus and the new cases and the asymptomatic cases, we think that the numbers are probably pretty close. Um, on the econ side, I would say what we're, the, there's not only just bad data sometimes out of China, there's also just non-existent data and information vacuum. And that's kind of where we feel like we're at right now. The first five or six weeks after the shutdown was kind of lifted initially on the back of the extended Chinese New Year, the government and businesses were all very, very focused on supply side constraints to production. So getting businesses back to work, getting you know facilities cleaned, getting workers back in offices and production facilities, and that was all about kind of loosening the constraints that the government had put on production and the, su the supply side of production. But in the past three weeks or so, businesses have really shifted their attention since they kind of ramped back up to about 80% of normal production. They've said, okay, we basically have dealt with most of the constraints on our supply side, but now we have no idea what the demand picture looks like. 
And until we see whether or not the consumer is going to come back or what's happening with external demand, we can't really normalize our operations. And so for, for, from our standpoint, there's a real kind of vacuum in terms of understanding the evolution of demand in China right now. That was uh, very helpful. And I guess the takeaway is um, it's not so much what is being said about, you know, the impact of the virus. Look to the actions and what's happening. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Emily, it would be great to have your perspective on this as well. Yeah. um, I think that, you know, double-pronged, look at what they're saying and looking at what their actions is precisely the way to go about this. And one thing about what Andrew just said, I think is particularly important right now, and that's that the actions clearly show that Beijing has indeed decided that there can be major normalization steps taken. And we're at an inflection point right now. Schools are in the process of starting to open. There are very concrete things that normalization means and that are either just started or that we're on the verge of. And those themselves are going to be, what happens with those is going to be one of the best, to my mind, indicators possible about what the actual medical situation is and what the state of cases is. Because these aren't things that you can hide or that you can massage or that you can fake your way through. So looking at the larger dynamics of life that are getting back up and running, um, whether that's transportation or education, Um, or commerce, I think those are going to be huge for our understanding of what's happening on the ground. And I would say, though, pushing back a little, that what they indicate is less that China is being fully transparent right now or that it's entirely under control, more that we're about to get something along the lines of an answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the one other thing I would add in terms of what the data is telling us just from a strategic level is that from the beginning, when looking at China's recovery planning and discourse, it's been clear that the response to COVID um, is to accelerate existing economic and geopolitical strategies. And that's everything from taking measures to increase foreign investment to having the priority areas of production and resumption of production be the selected strategic emerging industries areas um, or priority market segments or foreign funded enterprises. And so this gives us very much a sounding board of what the actual strategic priorities are and then what gets amplified as the world changes. So that's very helpful. And um, let me build on that uh, with both of you which is as China begins to return to normal and to reopen. Um, that is the, you know, the big question here in the U S under what conditions, with what evidence and how does one begin to restart the economy as people have said here in the U S. And so are there any particular insights, um, that you think are valuable for, business and policy leaders here in the U.S. that are coming out of China about restarting the economy and when and how. And then separately, I have a question if for some reason they have miscalculated from a safety and medical safety standpoint, uh, how will we know 
And is there some way to sort of learn something from that so we don't repeat, you know, any mistakes and we can take advantage of what I'll refer to as the actionable insights? Awesome. Um, I was just going to say that. So the first thing, as we take lessons from China, I think it's also super important to recognize that our system is just different. Um, and there are things that you can do in China in terms of regulations and imposing them that, as we're seeing now, sort of just simply aren't replicable in the U.S. And that's both a systemic question and a question of timing. We face different obligations economically, medically, um, geopolitically from having, you know, from being in the next wave of people hit, of countries and societies hit by the virus. Um, so those are first things I'd say, but there's a broader point about the potential value and also the potential dangers. So the potential value of information sharing and the dangers of not sharing information um, in a globalized world that we're seeing here. The fact, you know, poor data on the virus, poor data on the economic situation, um, poor data on recovery operations, challenges all our attempts to model medical, to model the spread, to respond to it, um, and to take like real concerted action. And so just from like a normative perspective, this point, this points to the real security and strategic necessity of holding other systems accountable for communication. Yeah, I very much agree with the information piece of that. And I guess I would just take it from a, a little bit of a different angle. I think, you know, when you when we're tra talking about trying to, you know, glean lessons from the Chinese response, my view is that it's really still too early um, to glean any major lessons um, in terms of their restarting of the economy. We should be tracking what's happening there to learn lessons over time. But I think there are sort of um, four things that we need to be thinking about generally. Um, the the first is that um, you know China's focus on the consumer side of the economy I think has been particularly uh, important and 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 trying to make sure that as the economy comes back to life, consumers have money in their pocket to go spend and are um, have enough confidence that they can can go out and. Uh, enough confidence in the economy that they can kind of um, spend as you know resume their normal habits of of spending. Um, so that focus, I think, is really important and unique in China's policy response. And what we should be tracking is to see um, how effective it is. And if it is effective, that's something that U.S. policymakers can take away. The second thing is, I think. The U.S. and other countries are going to go through a similar transition that China did from focus on supply to a, a, a shift towards demand. And that policy is going to have to be nimble in all of these countries to try to get com companies back up and running as quickly as possible. But then know there's going to be a fairly decisive turning point that companies are up, are up and running and policy then needs to shift more decisively towards, again, supporting that consumer. So that trajectory of policy, I think, was very important in China. I think it's going to be important elsewhere. I think 
the third issue that you know we should all keep in mind one of the most fascinating things of the policy response in china to me was how quickly public opinion changed um going from significant frustration um and anger uh, at the gov- at the early missteps of the government response you know with it kind of hit an apex when dr win liang di- or li win liang died um to in a matter of weeks as things started to normalize and as the virus went global public opinion seemed to change very quickly this is sort of just based on anecdotal evidence that that we have um that people went from frustration to suddenly thinking actually the government response was okay so i just that's another piece that we think about in terms of where public opinion polling is right now on the us administration's handling of the the virus things can change very quickly and the last thing i think that that policymakers should be looking at in terms of the chinese response is right now kind of the not the mantra around pandemic response efforts is normalization i think emily mentioned this and it's very very clear from the chinese government that sort of temperature checks and sanitation measures and some level of social distancing will be the new normal for an extended period in china and kind of helping the public in the us and other places understand that i think will also be uh very important for policymakers to do to know that sort of the extreme social distancing will go away over time but elements of it will remain and be normalized in our lives for you know months if not longer so those are uh, both uh, great insights let me uh, can i simplify this because i want to um i think there's some takeaways here um number one uh well data is important and obviously a focus on that what both of you seem to be emphasizing is um look at the behavior and look at what's actually happening in in china and uh what i would perhaps like to put forward is that rather than looking at the data and the number of people who might have been infected and and who might might have been you know dying in china what might have been more important for us in the us and, and the rest of the world was to look at what the chinese government was doing with respect to Wuhan and and surrounding areas that that may be you know told a a more reflective or indicative story of what of the nature of this virus and their concerns and what they were seeing and what i'm also taking away from both your comments is as you look at efforts to for them in terms of restarting and returning to a new normal to look less maybe at the data than the measures they are putting in place whether it's temperature checks masks social distancing how they are maybe beginning to open up the restaurants and the bars and in turn if there is a uh, setback rather than wait on the data per se to see if all of a sudden there are pivots or what I'll refer to as you know certain new measures that are being put in place is that an oversimplification of the lens and how to look through it I think that makes total sense um but I would add one more beat to it actually maybe two more beats the first is just taking a step back 
I think what you've identified there is precisely the equation more broadly, COVID aside, for how to deal with Chinese data. You can't trust the data, but you can find alternatives. And the second thing is you can't trust the data, but you can use it. So looking at what they do concretely in turn tells you which elements of the data are accurate and which are reliable. And that can be true both from the numbers themselves, but also in terms of assessing the trends. A lot of the time what you get with Chinese data is that the counting stats are not accurate, but their relative relationship is. And so you know, if you cross-validate enough, if you check with enough actual resource allocations and behavior, you can assess whether that holds and whether there are areas where there is more honesty or transparency, but also whether there are areas where trends are accurate when numbers are not. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's a, a good sum up, uh, David, of the of the comments. But but I think Emily's point there, just more broadly, is critical. Um, as two people who have spent, you know, <laughs> many years steeped in Chinese data, it sounds like we have a similar perspective in terms of the the two mistakes, the two kind of lazy mistakes you can make about Chinese data are saying, well, it's all bad, so we can't trust any of it. And the other is, it's all bad, but it's all we have, so we have to trust it. The reality is you actually can do, you know, deep work, especially on the economic side, to verify the methodology behind various data points and identify specifically where the weakness, like why data is weak, um, why the revisions are bad, how the methodology is lacking, and, and identify which data points you can trust and which ones you can't. Um, and we're going to get a big test of that as the economy recovers, right? Because, you know, they, they seem to be, have been more forthright with the economic data from Q1. And my view is that they, they knew that no one would believe in the rebound of the Chinese economy if they didn't own up to the extent of the weakness. So they sort of, their hand was a little bit forced. Um, but it's going to be critically important, obviously, to sort of verify and cross-check all these economic numbers coming out of China so that we can see, well, did their policy response work and what lessons can we learn from it? Um, on the, the COVID numbers specifically, it's a little bit harder to verify because we don't have other independent sources to really uh, to leverage. There are some ways to cross-check it to an extent. We've already talked about some of them. Um, but that the health numbers obviously are a unique information vacuum. Um, and so that one's a stickier problem to deal with. But more generally, since this is a podcast focused on Chinese data, I think that's a critical point for people to understand. And it's even more critical as we're looking to the Chinese economy in terms of um, you know, being being the the leading indicator of how the global economy might respond to um, the pandemic. And so that's uh, very helpful not to uh, not to invoke a uh, an expression from the Reagan years. Of, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, um, to some degree, you can trust the data, but but you have to look to other means to verify it. And to figure That's out right. what you can re rely upon and what you can't. So let me pull out a couple more threads that are coming out of this. And while the pandemic is a medical, biological, 
and I'll argue behavioral um, pandemic um, that is impacting us in all ways. It also reveals, obviously, geopolitical tensions, and Emily, uh, you indicated, uh, also reveals certain geopolitical priorities. Uh, I w to be absolutely fair, I'm still trying to figure out what data we can trust here in the U.S. in a uh, country where only a small percentage of people have been tested. There's a high mm -hmm. fallibility uh, in the test results, including false negatives. Um, the cities that have been hit hardest are still struggling with, you know, with reporting the actual numbers. There are, clearly, there's an underreporting. Clearly, there are people who passed away and haven't properly, you know, the causes of death have yet to be attributed. So, you know, in, in these types of situations, you know, data is always uh, less than perfect and, and quite frankly, you know, fallible. But then there are the political motivations in terms of what, what is put out and what is not put out. And there's the political lens. And so, um, Andrew, you were talking about, you know, sentiment uh, around handling the crisis. There did come a point in time, and there still is a point in time, where this is also an informational pandemic, uh, where each side um, putting out certain information. Um, there's been widespread reporting of the United States being blamed for the pandemic and having released the virus. We're hearing, you know, slow but steady drumbeats about possible involvement of a um, the Wuhan biology lab and the release of this virus of you know where where it was sourced uh, you're also um, you know hearing increasing misinformation and disinformation that may be fomented by um, various governments uh, in a way to drive further divisions in society, if not panic. I believe the New York Times had that story just about 24 hours or so ago about uh, Chinese efforts in that regard. Um, I'd be curious how you might look at that and also any, you know, sort of any insights you could lend to the informational nature and without no pun intended, what's, what's been going viral uh, out of both countries. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I think, go ahead, Emily. I think you can speak better to this than I can. So please go ahead. <laughs> um, David, I could not agree with you more. And I think Beijing could not agree with you more. Their strategic planning um, around COVID is very explicit about using this opportunity as not, using this moment as an opportunity. And Beijing assigns itself to doing just geopolitically in doing so. And one of those is its ability to control and to shape information. Beijing can project relative economic stability, which is going to draw foreign investment toward China, is going to help broad economic geopolitical sentiment about the country. And that's an inherent advantage. And it's an inherent advantage in the longer term of this crisis. And then, of course, there's the opportunity to shape the origin story or the response story. Beijing has a centralized, deliberate propaganda machine. Certainly the U.S. is a fragmented media market of you know, disparate, conflicting, and critical voices. 
And in a system, you can have the centralized player come in with its unified, strong message and shape all the fragmented players in its interests, which means you get Beijing promoting its story of China's effective response and of the U.S. ineffective response. And the same thing goes for debates over origin stories or economic stability or what have you. And that, when you move away from the immediate concerns and into the larger U.S.-China contest, that's a huge advantage. Andrew, do you have any particular perspectives? Yeah, I I, I agree with what Emily's saying and in, in the, the overall observation about um, the sort of information pandemic. And I think that's even, to me, that's a, a step back from the date, the pure data issues in a way. Um, you know, you can spin data, you can spin a narrative, and what actually is a really important in terms of overall information is what data does not exist. For example, we have no idea, you know, what the total number of tests uh, that have been done in China is. And that would be a really instructive number. So the fact that that number isn't out there, you know, um, and it, it should make us skeptical about the entire narrative uh, coming out of Beijing. Not that anyone needs encouragement to be skeptical about Beijing's narrative now, but the only additional point I'd say, um, you know, having lived in China for almost 10 years now, is what we often miss um, it, when we see the propaganda machine ramp up from China is, you know, we see it from the outside and we see how ham-fisted and sort of um, easy to see through it appears from outside. Um, but the narratives often work quite well domestically, um, whether it's because people sort of want to buy into that story or because generally the, the party, the Communist Party, is actually quite a popular um, entity domestically. Uh, I just think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that when we see these, what we kind of view as ham-fisted efforts that are you know, <laughs> wouldn't seem to work on on anyone just because of the control of the information environment within China. They often they often do work extremely effectively at shaping the narrative there. And so it's just it's something that I think doesn't always get captured by um, outside observation or particularly sort of Western reporting on China um, because the I think the perspective between your average sort of Chinese citizen and obviously your average Western citizen is, is quite different. But that, as Emily says, is a really powerful tool that Beijing has. And even though it seems like it may be um, not very effective from the outside, it actually from the inside, it, it is quite effective. And if I could oh. just add one more thing onto that, the Please other do. remarkable part yeah. is that I mean, that story is also effective to the rest of the world. I, you know, we're here joking that you know, nobody needs more convincing that China's data is not accurate, or you know, this goes without saying about not being able to trust the information. But it is still news in the U.S. that China's numbers aren't accurate. We're still still seeing like front page stories about the fact that 
you know, there could be three times as many deaths, there could be 10 times as many infections. And just the fact that that is newsworthy and that people talk about that points to the degree to which we have not internalized that information is not information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, look, um, I think it also would be uh, a lack of balance if we didn't note that the big debate that's going on even here in the U.S. with our free and open press is, you know, what is truth this, these days? The term fake news is bantered around, and I, I say that in a um, in a bipartisan way. That's not meant to be one-sided. And, you know, uh, our media now, I think, is at its lowest level of uh, popular trust uh, from consumers. So there's clearly an informational war going on. And Emily, I think your point is, you know, look, it's global in nature. It's not just about, you know, China versus the U.S. And in every you know, in every war, one of the first casualties is the truth. And I think we're, we're still, tr- you know, struggling to gain a foothold about a lot of questions about this and what was known and when was it known and what was shared and what was not shared and how did it uh, originate. So let me move on just in, in closing, and this has been very, very helpful, and I think there's some key takeaways for everyone, is as you're monitoring and looking at I'll call it data as well as actions. Uh, what will you be looking for? Emily, maybe I'll start with you and then close with you, Andrew. Yeah. Um, so there are probably two buckets of things I would put this into. The first is looking for internal and external validation on a statistical front of what China is saying. So that's as simple as looking at the statistics that are given in the Chinese press versus the statistics that are put out internationally. Or if you're given a national level number for something, then going to the provincial and the local level and seeing if if you add those up, it's within an order of magnitude. And that's just a very basic routine thing. So constant checking of the numbers that are coming out. But then the next bucket of things is proxies. So I think I mentioned schools earlier. We're tracking school openings or non-openings or pushing back of school opening gates as something that gives an indication of the relative normalization of life. Um, Transportation is also a similar indicator like that. And then moving into the more international bucket, uh, production in, um, so Production of foreign invested companies versus production of Chinese domestic companies is one of, is another very interesting delta because that gets at both China's priorities, but also the way it can use targeted resumption of production to shape the international perception of what's actually getting back up and running, which is to say that if all the foreign funded companies are back up and running, the world thinks that everything is back up and running. Similarly, the deltas among different industries. So, are you seeing more resumption in semiconductors and information technology as opposed to automotive? Or is that not the relationship? And what is that telling us about how we're going to see China moving with market shares and with supply chains? Um, So those are probably the big questions that we're asking right now. Yeah, I think all of those 
all of those are right on. Um, I, I, I mean, to be frank, I don't have a ton of a ton to add on the back of that. I mean, anyone, in, whether you're an investor or a company, needs to constantly be cross-checking any data point you come across in China against other sources. Um, and typically, the, the more sources you sort of cross-check, the the more um, accurate a picture you have of, of what's happening on the ground. So I think that's exactly right. Cross-checking official data with other official data, cross-checking um, official data with company-level data, and um, other private sector data. I mean, we've got a, you know, a ton of people. We have Vetrivium. We have a resumption index that, that we've been putting together through uh, collecting various data points coming out of the provincial level governments. Again, you know, you have to cross-check the provincial level governments around what companies uh, in that province are experiencing and seeing if they're right. But, you know, we have sat satellite imagery, um, people coming out with satellite imagery data to try to um, cross-check Chinese official stats. And it's just now it's it's more important than ever because I actually now, I'm, I'm more worried now about the manipulation of economic data now that they've been so forth or seemingly been so forthright in Q1. Like I said, I think their hand was forced and sort of no, it was clear to anyone who had eyes how bad the economy was in the first quarter in China. And so they had to print a deeply negative data point. But now, because resumption of the economy has become a target, you fall into the, the good heart's law trap potentially, which is, you know, when a, when a data point becomes a target, it loses its value as a measure of what's actually happening. And so we could get into that um, trap again now that, and I'm, I'm worried that sort of investors, the investment community will a little bit be lulled to sleep knowing that because maybe the Chinese government bought some credibility with the Q1 data. So anyway, I'm very, now is the time to be cross-checking um, if ever there were one. And if I could just um, close with one last question for both of you, uh, because your perspectives and comments, I think, underscore this, is um, this is a medical and biological issue. You have issues of um, behavior and, and, you know, the efforts to control panic and, and, you know, obviously enforce certain rules of compliance informational in terms of, you know, what people put out and, you know, and what they're trying to do, which could re reflect um, a variety of factors. But what both of you have suggested as well is that for, you know, the governments of all countries, but let's just focus on China and the U.S. for now, uh, this is also a political issue uh, in terms of how it's managed how it's communicated to one's own people, how it's conveyed to the rest of the world, and the consequences, some of which are obviously financial and economic, some of which are, you know, have to do with um, geopolitical influence, some have to do with local influence and power. Uh, but I, I think Andrew used the word, you know, popular sentiment and how that gets shaped about 
you know, the job that certain people are doing. But it seems to underscore not only, you know, can the data be trusted and if so what data and what else we should be looking at, i.e. the actions, but it's also important to understand this with a certain amount of, I'll, I'll call it, sophistication and empathy that governments are managing a political issue as well as part of this pandemic, mm-hmm. which obviously has national security and national economic security implications. Am I accurate in sort of taking that as a, one of the takeaways of what both of you are saying? Absolutely. I mean, it's tearing apart the world order right now, but that means it's going to cement a world order as things develop. I'd also, yeah, one of the things that, you know, we've kind of been zeroing in on is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about whether or not the, uh, the, the pandemic will accelerate the relocation of supply chains out of China. And I think to, to your point about how this is a ge- broader geopolitical and strategic issue, you know, I, I hear a lot of analysis and, and punditry saying that this is going to accelerate uh, that, that issue, the relocation of supply chains. Um, but if you talk, I haven't talked to a single company who's taking that perspective. They're all saying, we had already been thinking about it because of U.S.-China tensions, but this pandemic isn't accelerating that. And frankly, we don't have a lot of options and we're not um, on our own going to, going to really up our supply chain rejiggering. What that means is if that is going to happen and if that is a desired outcome, it is going to have to be policymakers who right. make it happen. Companies are not going to do it on their own. And, and by policymakers, uh, those are the people who are both in elected and unelected positions who control levers around subsidies and tariffs and import-export rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I refer to as economic incentives. Mm-hmm. And I think what that also means is that, in terms of like a U.S.-China competition, if you know the U.S. might respond to this, and policymakers might respond to this, and start doing those really systemic things, like putting in place policy that makes supply chains actually move, or the U.S. government doesn't, and that's going to determine like the direction that U.S. You know, that will decide U.S.-China competition, because if Washington doesn't start engaging systemically, this is going to accelerate what China's existing strategy was. And so the contest is over. Or if this is the watershed moment that actually changes the U.S. government's approach to competition, we're going to see an entirely new phase that's unlike anything that was that was evolving with what we called the trade war or the tech contest. So all in the context of an upcoming presidential election here in the U.S. Uh, So this has been uh, a great conversation and to be continued. I want to thank you both for very, very valuable insights and very uh, thought-provoking perspectives. Obviously, when it comes to looking at data and understanding the actions, um, it is extraordinarily helpful 
to have the guys and the Sherpas uh, alongside, such as Andrew and Emily, who are experienced at this, and there's a lot of acquired wisdom. And um, that's basically how, um, you know, how to separate the signals from the noise. And there's no question there's a lot of noise in the current environment. So again, Andrew and Emily, thank you for your participation in today's conversation. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.